Hello and welcome to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. This week I want to talk about Alfred Lord Tennyson, the Victorian poet, and I would say without doubt one of my favourite poets of all time and one of the first poets that really fired my belief that poetry can raise you up and be beautiful and earth-shattering. I discovered Tennyson initially in my Birmingham Polytechnic days, but I did a 6,000-word essay on Tennyson at Warwick University back in the 80s. And things were different then. I was a younger man with stranger ideas in some ways. And uh, I remember I had to see my tutor and explain what the essay would be about. And I said, I want it to be Tennyson's Maud, which is the name of a poem, Tennyson's Maud, a Freudian analysis. And he said, oh, God, is it going to be all about holes and things? And it was a bit. I've, I've just sort of discovered Freud and psychoanalysis and all that. I have sort of since undiscovered it, but at the time I was very impressed. Tennyson's Maud begins, I hate the dreadful hollow behind the little wood. Its lips in the field above are dabbled with blood-red heath. The red-ribbed ledges drip with a silent horror of blood. And I thought um, that had a lot to do with the speaker's attitude to women and his mother and birth slash death. As Yul Brenner said in The King and I, etc., etc., etc. Anyway, that was then and this is now. I still love Tennyson. I don't really love Freud. That was a brief flirtation, whereas Tennyson has been one of those long relationships where you sit at night by the fireside holding hands. Tennyson died in 1892, but there is an existing recording of Tennyson, um, incredibly, reading one of his most famous poems, The Charge of the Light Brigade. You, you must have heard uh, The Charge of the... I'll give you a bit. I'm not, that's not one of the poems I'm talking about, but I'm going to chuck it at just a couple of sections. And it's just, this is Tennyson for me, the the rhythm, the everything is there. And it's about, in case you don't know, it's uh, the Charge of the Light Brigade was an incident at the Battle of Balaclava in 1854. The poem was written or published a year later. And it was a sort of a suicidal death charge into enemy artillery. It, I think it was a mistake. Well, it was a mistake, but I think it, they didn't even... It was a miscommunication, a terrible tragedy. Anyway, the poem goes, There's not to make reply, there's not to reason why, there's but to do and die. Into the valley of death rode the 600, cannon to right of them, cannon to left of them, cannon in front of them, volleyed and thundered, stormed at with shot and shell, boldly they rode and well. Into the jaws of death, into the mouth of hell, rode the 600. And uh, you can hear Tennyson reading that. 
And it's great, but it is sort of, to be honest, it's sort of... It's, you know, it's not great quality. But it is Tennyson, and it's exciting to hear his voice, even though he seems to be frying bacon in a blizzard at the time. I'm going to get into a poem that I really love, another very famous, I say very famous, I never know what anyone really knows about poetry. There may be people who are big, massive poetry fans who know a lot more than me listening to this. There may be some people who's just checking it out. But if you sort of know poetry a bit, you might have heard of Tennyson's The Lady of Shalott, which was from a collection he published in... 1842 and the uh, the lady of shallot is an arthurian tale with lots of camelots and lancelots and no win a lot in case there's any dog lovers getting excited i'm gonna read you the first stanza of the lady of shallot i mean i'm gonna say it again tennyson is amazing just that old-fashioned poetic craft of using words and their rhythms and their meanings to just set off a firework display in your head. First stanza, The Lady of Shalott. On either side the river lie long fields of barley and of rye that clothe the wold and meet the sky and through the field the road runs by to many towered Camelot. And up and down the people go, gazing where the lilies blow, round an island there below, the island of Shalott. So, on either side the river lie long fields of barley and of rye. So, already you have nature and man's intervention. The river, I imagine, is just has always been there always in a not strict term but for a long time and men have um, planted barley and rye so it's 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 about already nature with all its wonders and secrets and man getting involved with it long fields of barley and of rye that clothe the wold wold is like open land and meet the sky and through the field the road runs by to many towered camelot and the rhythm of that, I think, on either side the river lie long fields of barley and of rye, to clothe the wold and meet the sky, and through the field the road runs by to many towered Camelot. He takes you to Camelot at a bit of a pace. You can feel, I think Camelot in this poem represents the world, power, life, commerce, things are happening in Camelot. So when you get near Camelot, you trundle along the cloud the wold and meet the sky and through the field the road runs by to many towered camelot so the road heads to camelot and up and down the people go i mean that is life isn't it and up and down the people go gazing where the lilies blow blow was an old term for bloom so where the lilies are flowering in front of you Round an island there below, the island of Shalott. And it's an island. It's 
separated from this hustle bustle of life and the way that the last line comes in the way the meter the way the rhythm changes i'm going to give it you again remember we rushed to camelot right through the field of real to many tower camelot and up and down the people go so it's really lively gazing where the lilies blow where the lilies blow just sounds a bit more distant and i think they are growing on the island of shallot so there's a sense there of a sort of distant tranquility a, a silence about this island so there's the contrast bustling camelot and the road to camelot and then this place where the lilies grow where we don't really mysterious island place and the way it ends there, gazing where the lilies blow, round an island there below, the island of Shalott. And the way that rhythm hits you, the island of Shalott, it stops you right there. It was all life and hustle and bustle. The island of Shalott. It's five syllables. I'm going to count them now. The island of Shalott. Six syllables. But it comes up like a film title. The island of Shalot, you can see that. You've got a bit of the world happening and then the camera moves to this slightly distant, different place and the caption comes up, the island of Shalot. That's where we're going to investigate. Next stands. I'm not going to do the whole poem, by the way. I'm just going to give you some interesting bits. Willows whiten, aspens quiver, Little breezes dusk and shiver Through the wave that runs forever By the island in the river Flowing down to Camelot Four grey walls and four grey towers Overlook a space of flowers And the silent isle embowers The Lady of Shalott it seemed all peaceful and tranquil when we just saw, oh, look at the lovely lilies blowing. But now, to me, it's a bit scary. Willows whiten, aspens quiver, little breezes dusk and shiver. Dusk is being used there. The noun dusk is being used as a verb. They darken, if you like. Willows whiten, aspens So these, the trees and the breeze whiten, quiver, darken, shiver, that something's slightly spooky. By the island in the river flowing down to Camelot. You notice that the river is heading to Camelot as well as the man-made road. Everything seems to be heading to Camelot. Four grey walls and four grey towers. This is where the Lady of Shalott is, I believe. This is her abode. Four grey walls and four grey towers overlook a space of flowers and the silent isle embowers. Embowers to be enclosed in a, in a bower, this, this silent isle, this different world is there. So all, all roads and the river lead to Camelot, but she resists. She isn't part of that. She feels very different. Okay, I'm going to move forward a little further in the poem. Uh, oh, in part two, we go indoors. We actually get to meet the Lady of Shalott in a slightly distant way, but we still, we, we go in to that bower. 
There she weaves by night and day a magic web with colours gay. She has heard a whisper say a curse is on her if she stay to look down to Camelot. She knows not what the curse may be and so she weaveth steadily. And little other care hath she, the Lady of Shalott. So now we are confirmed in our suspicion that this is a spooky thing. There she weaves by night and day. This is a 24-7 weaving um, action. A magic web with colours gay. So she's in her secret place, but she's creating something gay and colourful and beautiful and magical. She has heard a whisper say a curse is on her if she stay to look down to Camelot. So she can't... A curse is preventing her from even looking at Camelot. It's like she has to be removed from life so that she can concentrate on weaving the magic web with colours gay. And this is significant, I think, as we'll examine in a minute. And again, that when I said before we were raced to Camelot in these things, if you remember in the early ones, the cloud, the wall, to meet the sky, and through the field the road runs by to many towered Camelot, or through the wave that runs forever by the island in the river flowing down to Camelot. This is different. She has heard a whisper say, a curse is on her if she stayed to look down to Camelot. It's like he's introduced speed bumps now. You can't did it to Camelot to look down to Camelot it's it's not smooth for her that's a big thing that's a wrong thing the monosyllables that he uses to look down to Camelot they slow it down and they make it less flowing and so that's what she does she weaves she weaves because she doesn't have much choice. It says, and little other care hath she, apart from the curse, which is, I would imagine, fairly dominant in her thoughts. Maybe I'm wrong. Another stanza. Sorry, I love, I hope you love this as much as I do. I could read it to you all day, but I'm, I won't, I won't do that. And moving through a mirror clear that hangs before her all the year, shadows of the world appear. There she sees the highway near, winding down to Camelot. There the river eddy whirls, and there the surly village churls and the red cloaks of market girls pass onward from Shalott. Okay, so moving through a mirror clear that hangs before her all the year. She can't look directly at Camelot, if you remember. I haven't actually read more Arthur and all these Arthurian romances, but I, I, I'm guessing he's taken this from there. He may have embellished or even created. I don't know. It's not important. So she can't look. So she has a mirror on the wall so she can see the people going up and down. And this is very platonic. I don't know if you know that Plato felt that we were sort of in a... that life was like a cave in which we could see the truth reflected on the wall. So we never really saw the truth 
of things, the essential things were in a, well, he wouldn't have called it heaven, but they're in some special place. And we are slightly removed from the truth. So we live a life of shadows. And she has been placed in that position where she can't look at the world and all its activities. So she is slightly removed from the world by this, by the island, by a constant need to weave or be cursed. The river eddy whirls, that, that, ed, the eddy, that sort of movement of the water. Even the river has got a sort of a throbbing life to it. And there the surly village churls and the red cloaks of market girls. I mean, that is life, isn't it? This is young men and young women, a bit of banter, a bit of flirtation. And she, in her claustrophobic tower, only sees it in a mirror as she creates this beautiful magic web. I think it's hard to avoid the fact that this seems to be some sort of symbol for the artist, for the, I suppose specifically for Tennyson, for the poet slightly locked away, slightly removed from the world in order to create and create and create. And W.H. Auden um, was very anti having a biography written about him because he says poets don't do things, they think things. And I don't know if you can hear that, but there's a police siren in the background. I feel like the Lady of Shalott as I sit here hunched over my microphone and laptop with a book of Victorian poetry in my left hand and life is happening, excitement and perhaps violence, terror, who knows, symbolised by that police siren. I feel a bit um, Charlottian. So, Yes, that's what Auden says. Poets don't uh, do things, they think things. So it's, it's not action-packed. And I think she represents, this, if you like, the lonely artist, the, the poet, who responds to the shadows of life rather than to life itself tucked away in a little room. People have thought this, obviously. Ernest Hemingway, the American writer, was very keen to, although I think he's an amazing writer, and he wrote a short story called Indian Camp, which I read as a schoolboy, and which I still think of now, like more than 50 years later. So I'd recommend that on the way. But he was shot through with great gobbits of testosterone and needed to emphasise his maleness. I think maybe because some people see art and creativity as their feminine side and he was very keen to show that he was all man i suppose in the modern world gordon ramsay would be the sort of frying pan version of hemingway slightly afraid perhaps of the the, the femininity associations with the kitchen and so using testosterone as relish okay the last stanza in this part, oh, so that life is going on outside. She sees it in her mirror. But in her web she still delights to weave the mirror's magic sights. For often through the silent nights 
a funeral with plumes and lights and music went to Camelot. Or when the moon was overhead, came two young lovers lately wed. I am half sick of shadows, said the Lady of Shalott. Well, there's a few things happening here. The biggie at the end, of course, is we finally get words from the Lady of Shalott, but we'll uh, we'll come to that in a second. But in her web, she still delights to weave the mirror's magic sight. So she's using the world as her subject, but she's not of it. She's watching it in a in a mirror. I, again, I think a great symbol of, of the, the, the poet, the artist. An interesting example she chooses, or the speaker chooses, Tennyson chooses, as um, one of the things she loves to illustrate. For often through the silent nights, a funeral with plumes and lights and music went to Camelot. So we're told the... Artist is fulfilled, but it feels because the funeral is the example of lights and music, it does feel like a sort of death, this creative isolation. And then life comes at us again, or when the moon was overhead came two young lovers lately wed. I mean, that if you live on your own, if you are the solitary artist. That's tough to see. I am half sick of shadows, said the Lady of Shalott. And those sick of shadows, said the Lady of Shalott. It's slightly spat out, gives us that feeling. She's cracking the Lady of Shalott. I don't mean she's attractive. I mean she's cracking up. It's, it's great being the creative, but it's also pretty tough. And then something really special appears in the mirror. You've guessed it. It's Sir Lancelot, the, um, the masculine, handsome, dashing knight is going past. I mean, get this for the description of Lancelot's arrival. All in the blue unclouded weather, thick jeweled shone the saddle leather. The helmet and the helmet feather burned like one burning flame together as he rode down to Camelot. As often through the purple night below the starry clusters bright, some bearded meteor trailing light moves over still Shalott. So, here he comes, blue unclouded weather. It's a nice day and this honk appears thick jeweled on the saddle leather i mean the helmet and the helmet feather he is something to see as he rode down to camelot and this simile is often through the purple night below the starry clusters bright so at night some bearded meteor trailing light moves over still shallot a bearded meteor because it's got this blur coming off it this trailing light and that makes him is that saying that he's heaven sent 
in some way as that he's compared to a meteor in the heavens at night? Or is it some evil portent of danger which meteors were often seen as? We don't know yet. We might find out in this next stanza. His broad, clear brow in sunlight glowed. On burnished hooves his warhorse trod. Yes, that's trod, but, you know, that's to rhyme. From underneath his helmet flowed his coal-black curls as on he rode, as he rode down to Camelot. From the bank and from the river he flashed into the crystal mirror. Tira lira by the river sang Sir Lancelot. It's great, isn't it? His broad, clear brow in sunlight glowed. I mean, he is reflecting light, but it feels almost like he's emanating light. On burnished hooves, everything's polished and shiny. His war horse trod. And the use of trod, it's not just a, an easy rhyme. It, it gives us that Arthurian feel of medieval language. From underneath his helmet flowed his coal-black curls as on he rode, as he rode down to Camelot. Of course, everyone heads to Camelot. From the bank and from the river, he flashed into the crystal mirror. Stop it. It's a burst of light. She must have been there weaving her magic and thought, wow, what was that? Wow. Tiralira by the river sang Sir Lancelot. So that's what we hear from him. Tira Lyra. And you're sort of thinking, he's not clever enough for her, is he? Tira Lyra. This woman is creating a magic web of collars gay. And he's singing Tira Lyra. Uh, it suggests that he's carefree and confident, but she's clearly drawn in by this flash in the mirror. It's a bit like, do you remember the Diet Pepsi advert? When there was these women in an office and there's a guy, a construction worker or something outside and he takes his shirt off and has a, a Diet Coke and they all gasp. It's kind of like that. You know, he's probably, they'd be bored with him in a week, but wow. And this is the effect on the Lady of Shalott, as we find out in the next stanza. She left the web. Listen to the she's in this. Suddenly it's about her and about what she wants. So it's she, she, she. She left the web. She left the loom. She made three paces through the room. She saw the water lily bloom. She saw the helmet and the plume. She looked down to Camelot. Out flew the web and floated wide. The mirror cracked from side to side. The curse is come upon me, cried the Lady of Shalott. So it's second sentence we get from her. The curse has come upon me. So she left the web. She left the loom. She made three paces through the room. She saw the water lily bloom. That's a great line because it means for the first time she's seen life in its raw beauty. She didn't, it didn't say she saw it in the mirror. She saw it. She's looking at the world. She's looking at Lancelot with his helmet and plume. She looked down to Camelot. She suddenly needs to view directly to, to choose life over art, I suppose we would say. And 
it's I'm sort of when when I read this, I find myself saying, oh, "Don't do this. You, you're giving a lot up for Tira Lira Lancelot." Anyway, not long to go, and feel how things have changed here. Because remember, we had Lancelot arrive in blue, unclouded weather, and everything was shining and reflecting the sun. This is different. In the stormy east wind straining, the pale yellow woods were waning. The broad stream in his banks complaining, heavily the low sky raining over towered Camelot. Down she came and found a boat, beneath a willow left afloat, and round about the prow she wrote, the Lady of Shalott. So we get our old favourite pathetic fallacy. The, the weather, the environment, the landscape seems to reflect the fact that something bad is happening to the Lady of Shalott. In the stormy east wind straining, the pale yellow woods were waning, the broad stream in his banks complaining heavily, the low sky raining. Listen, that stormy, straining, pale yellow, waning heavily, low. It's all gone wrong. What happened to the colourful gay web that she was working on? It's all been replaced by a front of high pressure. Or is it low pressure? I don't know. I shouldn't be making meteorological references on this because I have no idea what I'm talking about. So the recluse now has had enough of it. As she said, she was half sick of shadows. And now not only is she out of her tower, but she writes on the front of the boat, the Lady of Shalott, as she really is rejecting obscurity now. She doesn't want to be hidden away creating these beautiful things anymore and no good will come of that and sure enough i move into the last stanza now you might be relieved to hear she ends up as you can uh, probably guess dead in the boat and it lands by the castle at Camelot where everyone's been uh, you know partying the rich and famous the in crowd and then they see this thing. And it sounds like a world, a crazy party world, where sombre seriousness is quite threatening. And this is, this is a, a scary and frightening sight. So they look out and see her in the boat. Who is this and what is here? And in the lighted palace near died the sound of royal cheer. And they cross themselves for fear all the nights at Camelot. That's nights with a K. But Lancelot mused a little space. He said, she has a lovely face. God in his mercy lend her grace. The Lady of Shalott. Who is this and what is near? That's like the voices of the courtiers. And in the lighted palace near, this lighted it's a sort of a false light, it sounds like. I presume it's torches and stuff amidst this sudden darkness. Died the sound of royal cheer. The party stops. 
and they cross themselves for fear all the knights at Camelot at this strange sight in the water below. But Lancelot, proving here he's a bit more than Tira Lyra, he thinks of the love that might have been, perhaps, and he says, but Lancelot mused a little space. It's only a, just a brief thought, but even so. He said she has a lovely face. God in his mercy lent her grace, the Lady of Shalott. So in a strange way, she's died for Lancelot, for what he offers or seems to offer, what he seems to represent. It, the message seems to be that art must remain distant in order to retain its, its specialness, if you like. But it's nice that he sort of blesses her not really knowing what he did and how he changed things for her. And there it ends with his blessing. And this is why I'm not a poet and Tennyson was a great poet. I would have felt a need, which I would not have been able to resist, to have some form of that shallot as an ending to this. And I'm so glad he didn't. And there it ends. I believe, and I'm sure I've told you this before, that every reader of a poem owns that poem, owns their own version, their own interpretation of that poem, no matter how personal, how bespoke that version might be. This, to me, The Lady of Shalott, is about the life-work deal that a creative type does. And I can only speak as a comic, which I know is not a highly respected corner of the arts, even if it is part of the arts. I see it more as a craft myself. Nevertheless, I certainly, there was a long period in my career when I was so delighted to be a comedian that I put everything else in second place and like quite a way back in second place. I'm talking about relationships, other people in general, and everything was about what I did, being the best comic I could be. And eventually, for most of us, you can't handle that level of lonely intensity anymore and you start having babies and settling down. And I believe that when that happens, you're never quite as good as you were before. Or if not, maybe not quite as good, but not as prolific. You've just got less time to work than you did. And I think The Lady of Shalott is about the totally focused, totally single-sighted, committed artist who allows love and the world to get in the way of that art and it destroys her. Now it hasn't destroyed me, it's um, the move from single-sighted, not really ambition but just focus, the move from that to a sort of more laid-back family life has been joyous but yeah it takes up a lot of time and Lady of Shalott 
when she was at it 24-7, she must have been churning out some brilliant tapestries in Collar's Gay. And you know what? She saw Lancelot. That was that. This is... um, It's not relevant, really, is it? It's just... I'm just making the point that a poem can mean something to you that it doesn't mean to anyone else. The important point of this whole podcast is I genuinely think that Alfred Lord Tennyson is a fantastic, fantastic poet. His words, his rhythms, his structures, his ideas. I had another poem to talk about, but it's, it's gone on long enough. Maybe I'll put out an alternative extended version for enthusiasts. But here ends today's lesson. Thanks for listening to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. Don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. And you can also catch me every Saturday at 8am on Absolute Radio. There'll be less poetry in that, but more jokes. See you next week. 